What's up, Hardwater family? Hope you guys are doing well. Today we have a special edition of the show. We're going to be talking a lot about cannabis uh, with Jim Brown. Now, Jim Brown and I had a conversation that lasted somewhere in the neighborhood of three hours, just going back and forth on the merits and the benefits and basically getting an education around cannabis, what its uses are, and a little bit about its history, how it's grown, and the business. So we talked a lot in and around this particular topic, and I'm going to end up breaking this episode into two halves so that it's not so overwhelming. Again, three hours of content is a lot. So check out the first half, guys, and we'll break it up, and then we'll have the second half for you releasing next week. Until then, guys, enjoy the show. Talk to you soon. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Jim Brown. Now, Jim is a cannabis advocate, educator, and entrepreneur. He's a man that's uh, been in and around the, I guess you say, the orbit of my life for quite a few years, probably since the Psy work back in the days. And I have the opportunity to dive down his world of cannabis today. We're going to get a little bit about his story and learn about the plant that everyone is talking about these days. So, Jim, welcome to the show, man. I appreciate you being on and uh, taking the time. It's great to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to share some of this information. Yeah, me too, brother. I'm excited to learn all about it. As I said before, off mic, I don't really know that much about it. So I'm looking forward to getting an education today. And I know you're the guy to do that. Uh, one of the things I, I think that that really helps people take information in is having a little bit of background and color around the person that they're talking to. <clears throat> so if you would, could you just take us a little bit through early Jim's life, where you're from, um, you know, how you grew up, how you got into this, uh, this world in the first place. Uh, just give us a little bit of history on you. Yeah. Thank you. I'd love to. So I grew up, uh, on and off near, uh, the, well, I was born in Gallup, New Mexico. So that's a, a little tiny town, uh, that was basically founded around the railroad. So a lot of ethnic diversity there. And there's also, it's surrounded by five different uh, Native American reservations. So uh, I'm half Hispanic. I grew up on the wrong, you know, the wrong side of the town on the uh, north side of the tracks there. And, uh, you know, my grandparents basically built their house out of adobe there. They're Hispanic. And uh, my dad, uh, his, his father uh, made it there from the railroad. So he was a Scottish guy. So I'm half Scottish, half Hispanic. I speak Spanish, even though uh, most people don't believe it. And um, so I guess that has to do something with uh, uh, there has a part of me growing up has something to do with the, you know, Native American influence being all around me early on in my childhood. And my grandparents' house was literally um, about three blocks from the ceremonial grounds. So, so, excuse me, from the time I was a kid, I would hear like the Native American songs. And I mean, like literally from the time I was in my mom's womb, those songs were around, you know, I can hear them like literally live down the street every year when they would do the ceremonials mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. So uh, the Native American influence and culture is, is a undeniable part of my life. Uh, my parents divorced when I was young. My dad moved to Montana when I was five. So, or moved to Wyoming, Montana area. So I grew up on and off between 
New Mexico, Wyoming, and Montana as I went to school. Um, being a kid that was basically in a new place almost every year. So my grandparents stayed in uh, Gallup until they passed. So I would go visit them in the summer, go see my mom in Albuquerque in, you know, for the school year, spend another summer in Montana with my dad. So my brother and I bounced around a lot as kids, uh, which is probably why I'm so shy today. And, uh, you know, so introverted why you have to always coax everything out of me kind of a thing. Uh, <laughs> anyone who knows me knows that you got to occasionally, uh, hit the pause button on me, especially when it comes to the subject of cannabis. So for sure. Anyway, I started using cannabis when I was about 12 years old. Um, and it helped me to focus and to, uh, you know, to, there were certain things that I, couldn't articulate at that time that were especially in the eighties. I was born in 1970. So that when I was 12, 13 years old, that was, uh, you know, early eighties when the war on drugs was at its peak, when it was a felony to have a cannabis seed. If they found a seed in your car, you were going to have a trial around it. And I mean, like, no, it sounds like a joke today, but that's literally how it was back then. And that would get your whole car searched. It could get your house searched, et cetera. So there was all this fear around this plant and, you know, and having it. And I had this other experience of, you know, being able coming across it at an early age. Uh, there were lots of people in, in, uh, in my vicinity, you know, that were using it, um, kids, parents there, it was just kind of, a uh, something that was around. And so, uh, I had a very different experience of it. You know, it wasn't something that made me, uh, any of the ways that they said, you know, I, I found that I was able to navigate school. I found I was able to do all these other things and more effectively when I had it than when I didn't. So fast forward, uh, uh, I graduated high school, moved to Phoenix. I graduated high school in Montana. I moved to Phoenix where my daughter was born and I lived there for 30 years. That's where you and I met through personal development program right, right. and, um, sci seminars. Uh, so I, uh, through my work with sci seminars, I became an, you know, decided that, uh, I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. So I've owned multiple businesses, uh, construction businesses, I owned a bail bond company at one point, uh, the bail bond company in a, an interesting way. And through all of this time, pretty much cannabis has been something that I, that I've used, you know, throughout my life. So, um, the bail bond company, we referred a bunch of lawyers, you know, work back and forth to lawyers. So when people would, you know, need defense attorneys, we would refer the attorneys when they would need a bond, the attorneys would refer us. So through one of the attorney connections, when they legalized cannabis in Arizona, I uh, put together a team. He sort of helped coach us through the early laws and regulations to put in an application. Uh, there was a bunch of complications and money and, you know, investments falling out, et cetera, to get the license. The long story short is I left my bail bond company to pursue a cannabis license in Arizona, uh, which they only, they only issued 99 licenses. Um, and I received one of the 99 licenses. So it was through a lottery. We 
we had about $200,000 into this application by the time we had a building secured and the application filled out and all the experts on board, all the different security plans and business plans, et cetera, um, put in there, uh, plus a $10,000 non-refundable application fee. So 99 licenses, there were somewhere in 500, between 550 and 600 applications that were put in. A group that I founded received uh, a license in North Central Phoenix. And after a couple of years of legal battles and uh, zoning battles, et cetera, we were finally able to get the dispensary open near Metro Center and it's still there. Uh, so the uh, through owning this dispensary, uh, I, for three years, I worked with the public there. And mm -hmm. over the course of three years, um, I've worked with more than 6,000 patients to help them understand how cannabis works as medicine. I was also one of the early advocates, you know, due to having this license, I had to go into the neighborhoods and speak mm -hmm. to community labor. Uh, leaders, I had to sit down with, I was one of the first dispensary owners to go to a precinct and sit down with a precinct commander and all of his drug sergeants. So me, a big long table, about 12 drug sergeants and the precinct commander. Uh, <laughs> when And this is 10 years ago, you know, like this is when to have cannabis with, with, uh, without a medical card, well, it's still a felony in Arizona, not you know that but then it was taken way more seriously no one knew what was going on so anyway i was one of the first dispensaries to start carrying cannabis oil through my work with cannabis oil and uh severe conditions um i discovered that uh cannabis can write a lot of the things that is wrong with the human condition right now and that you know uh so we'll get into that a little bit but essentially long story longer that's how I ended up in uh, the field of cannabis. And in 1996, when, uh, when the endocannabinoid system was discovered and all of this language and vocabulary showed up around it, it gave me a, basically a sword, a new power, like the superpower. All of these things that I felt my whole life were now put into words and were now put into actual uh, studies that were done in Israel. And there was all these doctors that were actually talking about this system, regulating these other system, not all these doctors, a few people, uh, you know, discovered that. So anyway, sparked a huge, uh, fire in me. And the more people that I see have miraculous results, the more people that I see are able to send their life in a better direction, enhance certain things, you know, stop or, use alcohol less it makes me more passionate so yeah 100 um, man so there's a lot to unpack in what you what you were talking about it's funny that you mentioned gallup i've actually been to gallup uh quite a few times uh we used to have <laughs> really? a store up in that up in that area and i always wondered what life would be like growing up there man because there's really not much going on it doesn't seem oh, like it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere crazy. like uh northwest corner of new mexico and you know you're 200 what is it 200 miles to albuquerque something like that 140 miles, yeah, something yeah, like, like that. 230, 230 miles, something like that to Albuquerque. Yeah, it's a ride. And I mean, you're not, you're not really near any big towns. You're just kind of out there isolated. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned I wanted to unpack was you said you started using uh, cannabis when you were 12 years old. And you, yeah. you were talking a little bit about your culture and growing up, you know, half Native American. Um, and so I'm just curious, was that a part of the Native American culture 
was that just something that you were doing, you know, as a kid, just, you know, hanging with your buds, getting high kind of a thing, or was it a little bit more spiritual um, than that? Well, I'd say as far as the cannabis goes, uh, and, um, uh, to clear it up, I'm half Hispanic, but I grew up surrounded by native Americans. So there's definitely that influence on my life. Oh, my bad. Yeah. And I, I said native say, American. I meant Hispanic. Sorry about that. Oh yeah. Uh, no worries. I, so basically I, the, the cannabis and weed thing, especially at that time, it was weed. So we were, it was more about smoking it and, you know, just, uh, getting high with my friends mm-hmm. sort of a thing. However, you know, like I said, I, there was a, uh, a therapeutic benefit and it was after I got my dispensary, one of my childhood friends was like, dude, do you remember that one time we were running home from, we, we were out doing, probably doing something we weren't supposed to be doing at like two, three o'clock in the morning. And he had to run home. We literally ran across town, which was like five or six miles to his house, which is where I was supposed to be staying the night before the sun comes up kind of a thing, you know, we had to be 13, 14, 15 years old, something like this. He somehow fell and cut his arm pretty bad, ended up needing stitches. Mm -hmm. And, um, I was like, he's like, do you remember telling me, dude, smoke some of this, it'll help with the pain. And I'm like, no way. And, And he's like, and I smoked and the pain went away. And I'm like, I, I didn't, I didn't even, I still don't even recall that particular instance, but he recalled it vividly mm-hmm. and, uh, was pretty interesting to have somebody, you know, say, you know, do you remember this? Which is, like I said, I had these feelings and, uh, this sort of, uh, um, mm-hmm. vibe around the plant. So at that time I would say the native American influence was they definitely were, you know, you would hear about the ceremonies that involve peyote mm-hmm. and sage and right. other plant medicines, but they weren't the, the native Americans where I was at weren't using cannabis for any type of ceremonial stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, however, there was a deep respect for the plants that, you know, plants and animals and that sort of kingdom. So I think there's that aspect of it is put a question with me of, well, if we respect all these other plants, you know, it's not the Native Americans that are saying it's bad. It, they, it was more, you know, the fear of surrounding, being caught with it than the actual plant. But that's basically why I think they steered away from it. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I remember those days. Um, I'm, you're not that much older than me. I remember the, the war on drugs and the whole this is your brain on drugs era, you know, with the yeah. whole cracking of the egg and dropping it in the frying pan. And, you know, I remember being taught in school, I think we had a some sort of drug awareness class where they went through the different types of, you know, uh, mood altering drugs. And they gave us all the scare tactics and all the rest of it around psychedelics and marijuana and all the rest of it. And I remember just never having a desire after having that class to even look into that world. And so, you know, I grew up pretty much ignorant of what was going on, but you had to be exposed to all that stuff as well. And so it doesn't sound like there was any fear in, in your mind around, you know, giving it a shot and, and, you know, and using it on a regular basis. Yeah, absolutely. And as you mentioned, growing up in that small town, you know, with they're really not having much to do. And, uh, it's like out in the high desert, you know, there's not even like mountains or anything. There's a river that goes through the town, but they call it the Rio. It's the name of it is the Rio Puerco, the pork river, the pig river. So anyway, it, there, you know, it was, uh, it definitely was a tough existence as a kid. And there were, because there's a major highway that runs through there and there's truck stops there and stuff. I'm sure 
that's where a lot of the drugs made it into that town. So, um, and there were lots of kids that were exposed to drugs and alcohol. Unfortunately, there at an early age, I, you know, I was one of the the ones. And so, um, as you probably know, alcoholism is a huge problem there. And now, you know, with the opioid epidemic still at an all time or still at a, a fair clip, um, it, there, the reservations there and Gallup itself has been hit pretty hard with the opioid epidemic right. as well. So, you know, I've definitely cannabis is one of the, the positives that hit me from there, but I definitely had my, uh, tangles with hard drugs and those kind of things just because, um, number one, there was this sort of vibe. If it was coming for the government, it was probably not true. Or there was probably some other, you know, that's, uh, I guess that I, I never even thought of that till right now, but I guess that's another native American sort of influence is that I, if it comes from the government, I immediately question it, mm -hmm. you know, uh, um, and, or if it comes from some sort of an, quote unquote, official, you know, type source, school teacher, et cetera, I would instantly have a question about it. And not that I would deny it, but I would always want to make sure, you know, and I would lean towards that. So anyway, um, the, I think all those things, uh, sort of led towards, uh, the cannabis usage and other drugs as well. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of that stuff, a lot of getting into trouble mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, cannabis is really the one saving grace. You know, ironically, it's the one thing that uh, I can use that that uh, keeps me from using alcohol and things like that. You know, like I don't alcohol is not my favorite uh, thing for me to consume. It's, it's mm -hmm. just it doesn't my body doesn't do well with it. So, yeah, I can relate to that for sure. I, I've had one beer this year and uh, nice. I had one beer and came home and passed out asleep just slept the rest of the day. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was pretty much it, man. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of, uh, of alcohol at all, but, but Christina likes to drink wine. And so every once in a while I get roped into one of those things where I have to go and sit while she drinks wine and, and have a beer with her right. or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's not so bad. Yeah. Definitely not so bad. It's a, you know, it's just one of those things every once in a while it's like, all right, cool. You know, let's, uh, let's sit down, let's chill, let's have a beer. Just made a post about this actually the other day. It's a, the photo of the one beer I've had this year, but, uh, it's kind of interesting <laughs> to hear you say that, you know, cause, uh, I mean, when I was growing up, alcohol was a thing, man. That's what people, you know, that's what kids Absolutely. were into, you know, it was, you had to drink and, you know, every party you went to had it. Um, marijuana much less so. I don't know if there was as much access as it sounds like what you had, but it was definitely present. And, uh, you know, I've, I've seen kids do all kinds of crazy things on anything, like you pick the thing and, and, and some sort of craziness can emerge from that. But uh, one of the things that was right. interesting about what you were saying about your story was the fact that it seemed as though you had some sort of awareness that there was benefits um, in the usage of the cannabis uh, even at an early age. Is is that what I'm hearing? Yes. I mean, aside from the pain, was there something else that entered your awareness about the benefits of the plant? Absolutely. <clears throat> um, I would say, uh, you know, I've never been clinically diagnosed with ADHD or anything like that. However, uh, focus, even from the time I was a little kid has always been an issue for me. And I've definitely found that, uh, not all cannabis. However, there are certain types of cannabis, certain strains that definitely help with focus. <clears throat> um, 
So I, I would say that's definitely one of the things I noticed. Um, and, I, uh, there was also this sort of, uh, you know, there's, as we get into the podcast, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but now that we have all this information, uh, you know, and, uh, there is a system in our body that takes in the compounds from the cannabis plant, uh, called the endocannabinoid system or the ECS. And there was this like pull whenever I would smoke it and I'd go a few days without it, that I would be like, and you know, what they would call an addiction didn't feel like an addiction to me. You know, I truly believe I have an addiction to alcohol. The it's more the, my need for cannabis is more like, if you haven't, like if you're missing some kind of a, like beta carotene or something like that, and you smell somebody cooking carrots or your body's deficient in vitamin C and somebody peels an orange in front of you, you, you know, it's like that sort of your body pulling you towards it versus, um, a, an unnatural or unhealthy craving that doesn't make sense. Um, and so there was always that conundrum with me when they would say, Oh, it makes you so addicted and all this sort of thing, which, you know, undeniably there are people who are addicted to cannabis and there are people who have what we call an endocannabinoid deficiency, two different sets of people, you know, anything can be addictive. So that's Mm -hmm. definitely something that, you know, needs to remain part of the discussion and, and uh, if there's a point where it becomes a senseless usage or where it does more harm than good, obviously that conversation needs to take place. Right. However, there was this pull as a kid with the, uh, with um, feeling like my body needed it mm-hmm. and I couldn't quite explain it. So could you, could you not classify that as like a, a physiological addiction though, in some sense of the word, or is it just like you said, like your body's t- steering you towards something that it's deficient in? Well, I think without the knowledge of the endocannabinoid system, definitely you could. However, see, our endocannabinoid system is supposed to manufacture cannabinoids on its own. And um, so we manufacture cannabinoids and we receive those cannabinoids in the system. We have receptors and then we have another part where they generate the cannabinoids. Also, uh, when kids breastfeed, from their mothers, if they're lucky enough to have that experience, um, one of the biggest transfers of cannabinoids happens in breast milk. There's a cannabinoid that uh, is transferred called 2AG. And um, it's known that children who breastfeed are have better cognitive function, they learn things faster, they have better immune in general, uh, their immune systems are uh, developed more quickly, et cetera. So um, it's possible and it, there, it's now being discovered that many American or many people have uh, endocannabinoid deficiencies. When, see, we've grown up with this plant for the last 5,000 years at least. They're, they found people buried with this plant 5,000 years ago. So uh, when you think about it, hemp and cannabis and these different um, strains and species of this plant, 
were everywhere in nature. They exist everywhere from the mountaintops in Afghanistan to the tropical islands in the Bahamas and Hawaii and China and like it's Africa. It's on every continent with the exception of Antarctica. So, um, and it's found everywhere humans are found. Well, about a hundred or so years ago, they decided to eradicate this plant, take it out of the human chain. See, every farmer had hemp grow, or almost all the farms and people who worked the land had hemp growing near or on the farm. So even the animals would consume it. Uh, the animals would have these cannabinoids in their system. We would eat the chickens or the pigs or whatever domesticated animal that's eating this hemp. And uh, that would act as some type of a <clears throat> supplement for our system. So when, when they eradicated this plant, we stopped supplementing it. So it's kind of like vitamin C and people getting scurvy. Now that we've got a hundred years of this plant being out of our food chain, we're starting to see some of the weakness. And then obviously there's other things that at play like toxins in our environment, et cetera, the stress and, you know, people don't breathe properly. They don't, we don't exercise the food we eat, et cetera. However, when that's combined with an endocannabinoid deficiency, um, you can see how it would start causing problems also. Uh, so I guess along the lines of addiction, um, it's really not classified as a physical addiction. Um, as far as the endocannabinoid deficiencies, it's more of a mental addiction, like a, like a habit, mm -hmm. like any other, like, um, gambling or credit cards or something like that. Gotcha. That's, uh, typically more of the addiction you're going to see with cannabis. So that raises an interesting question and maybe you can talk uh, to this, you know, if, if uh, cannabinoids have been removed from basically what I'm saying, like the food chain or the diet or some form of consumption, mm -hmm. what would be, what would be some of the effects of that in a population? You know, like if, if I'm getting the proper amount or if I'm consuming cannabinoids versus not, what might you see in someone who is benefiting from that versus not? Man, that's a great question. And the, uh, I think it's really important to understand that this endocannabinoid system that we have, see Western medicine still to this day, the doctors in Western, and I'm not, this is not about bashing on doctors. I, I have mad respect for a lot of the Western doctors and a lot of the people that practice Western medicine. However, there's an aspect of, you know, the, of uh, Western medicine that is, uh, that has some unknowns. And one of those see Western doctors that are trained in these practices think we have 11 systems in our body, our respiratory system, our immune system, circulatory, etc. We have 12 systems in our body. The 12th system is the endocannabinoid system and the endocannabinoid system is in 90 to 95% of the individual cells of your body. So you have receptors in 90 to 95% of the cells of your body, your eyeballs, your skin, your liver, your kidneys, your brain, your intestines, your stomach, your muscles, etc., all have receptors for these compounds. So when your body is manufacturing and receiving these cannabinoids on its own in perfect harmony, which is why some people, when they smell the plant or when they consume it, they don't have a good experience. They usually have a difficult experience. 
those are typically people who have a healthy functioning endocannabinoid system. When someone consumes the plant and their physical state improves, that is very likely someone that has an endocannabinoid deficiency. So um, when you talk about uh, some of these severe illnesses, um, I believe, I know from my experience and observation that many of these diseases are endocannabinoid deficiencies. How do I know that? Because when I, the 6,000 patients that I worked with, when we introduced cannabinoids into their regimen, their, the severe illnesses either decreased significantly or stopped. And I'm talking about cancer. Uh, I'm talking about lupus. I'm talking about um, Alzheimer's disease. I'm talking about multiple sclerosis. For instance, multiple sclerosis, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and um, a, a several others. But we'll just use those three for now are basically long, uh, you know, drawn out ways of saying that the immune system is attacking a certain part of the body. So um, multiple sclerosis, it attacks the, the nerves and the myelin coating on the end. The immune system attacks the, you know, the, with the, um, with arthritis, it mm -hmm. attacks the bones, etc. So essentially what you have going on is these two systems, one system thinking the other one is an enemy to the body. Well, both of those systems have these CB receptors in them. When you introduce the cannabinoids, these two systems start to speak on the same language again which is, the term for that is called homeostasis. So cannabinoids promote homeostasis, which is essentially a body that is in perfect harmony with itself. So, so that's, so that's the, what you're proposing is the, the primary purpose of the ECS then? Yes. Okay. Got uh, it. To regulate homeostasis. Regulate home. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So then, I mean, as, as an outsider, like if you're not in that world, right, if you're not in the world of cannabis and you're not studying this stuff and, and mm -hmm. I encounter you on the street and we strike up a conversation and you start telling me, you know, Hey man, cannabis can help you with this and this and this and this and this. It almost sounds like, you know, a snake oil salesman from like the 1800s, right? Like it, this thing can cure so everything, right? Yeah. You know, so, I mean, how do you, you know, when you're speaking to someone who is, you know, maybe suspect of, of doing something or exploring cannabis, man, do you, do you find that people have tremendous doubt going in or are you dealing with people who are just so fed up with the way that they're feeling that they don't care anymore and they're just willing to try anything? You know, I would say, well, I, I have basically refined my approach, if you will, to, if I see somebody shut down and they don't want to hear it, I don't pursue the conversation. You know, I'm not interested in making somebody more angry or, you know, closed off to the plant. So if someone isn't interested in having the discussion, I'm definitely, and when someone comes to me and says, you know, my uncle, man, he has cancer. Can you please sit down and talk to him? But he's a, you know, he's, whatever, an ex judge or something like that. And he's just not down. And I'm like, I'm happy to send you some, you know, do some things that may change his mind. But if you put more pressure on somebody that doesn't want to go there, the chance there, you know, you and I know that the, what you resist persists. So right. they're going to most likely resist if you push harder. Um, but, um, to your question about the, uh, like, Oh my God, like it, it really, it cures everything. Well, it's, it, you know, yet yeah, the, 
there is this aspect, the unbelievable aspect of it. And because we've been conditioned our whole lives to think you need one pill for this one thing. And, you know, we, we, as a society, we play this whack-a-mole game where when it pops up, you throw one pill or treatment at that one particular thing. And then another thing pops up as opposed to, you know, it's very much like a a balanced diet in my opinion. Like when you're getting all of the things into your body that it needs, um, it's not that it cures these things. It's that it puts your body in a state where your body won't allow these things to be part of what's going on because your body is literally in harmony with itself. As I mentioned, uh, and that's why I emphasize it so hard, 90 to 95% of the cells of your body have these receptors. And uh, according to Dr. Raphael Meshulam and his team, who this, that's the gentleman that discovered CBD and the, also the person who discovered that you can treat seizures with CBD and with cannabinoids, Dr. Meshulam and his team have produced information and have produced uh, experiments that show that the endocannabinoid system is responsible for 85 to 95% of disease response in the human body. And Western doctors don't know anything about it. It's only taught in 13% of medical, excuse me, it's not taught. It's only mentioned in 13% of the Western medical schools. So the doctors, 87% of medical doctors of MDs and nurses are not even the endocannabinoid system isn't even mentioned. So there, these systems in our body are often thought about, you know, you have these specialists, Oh, he's a respiratory specialist. Oh, he's a, this specialist or that specialist, you know, there. And so they're put in the, and you know, our body is not these chapters in a book. It's like this whole mushed up harmonious sort of symphony or conglomerate, you know, what, depending on whatever we're doing that's going on. So it's really, um, the way I like to think of overall health is more like directing a symphony as opposed to addressing these one little finite channels, like sliders on the old, you know, when you would go into the old recording studios and see them like, you know, it's more of uh, addressing it overall, like a live symphony. Yeah. That's a great point, man. I, you know, it's interesting that you that you phrased it that way because, yeah, you're right. We are conditioned to think that if you have this one particular condition, then, hey, there's a pill for that. But then if you read the side of the pill bottle, it says, oh, but by the way, it's going to fuck up all these other areas of your body. You know, if you're not careful, right. there's going to be this, yep. these side effects that are going to screw with everything. So I guess the question then, you know, why wouldn't we consider something that could, you know, potentially impact us in a positive way across multiple domains in our body be like the greatest thing ever. Right. As because we sort of think of this pill we're taking as this hammer that's going to, or, you know, like this little guy that's going to run into that joint and fix that little thing in there, you know, oh, so specific at tar- They even in the ads, they say, Oh, it targets this specific blah, blah, blah. And, you know, and so, um, <clears throat> the, <clears throat> Yeah, I think it's really important to emphasize that it's not that cannabis cures these conditions. It's that it puts the body in a harmonious state. When your body is in a harmonious state, 
it's not supposed to allow disease to enter. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, we're not supposed to be living with cancer. We're not supposed to be living with these things. Our body is supposed to be in homeostasis. And so I think through a lot of the marketing campaigns and things like that, it's like, oh, you know, do you pee twice during the night? Oh, you, you got problems. You got problems, <laughs> you know? And it's like, do do I have problems or do I just drink some water before I went? Did I just right, drink too right. much water before, you know? And so anyway, but it, these, uh, the questions start popping up of like, oh, well, you know, there's so many people that have all these things. I must have to have some things too. And it, it actually is, you know, the way our bodies, you know, we're success machines. Our body is designed to be at optimal, you know, which is one of the things I love about what you do with hard water, with hard water and all those things, all the information you put out on physical fitness and why I was so excited to do this because, um, I do believe that when your body is, you know, when you combine this plant with overall health, you know, it has more to do with just cannabis. When I'm working with somebody who has, you know, stage four metastatic melanoma, I'm not just telling them take this oil, you know, when I break it down, you know, here's what I would do if I were in your position. I basically say, listen, you got to start at the beginning, cut all the sugars out of your diet. You got to add these green vegetables like spinach and kale and things that are colorful. You got to take people out of your life that are in any way negative. You only need people that are laughing, hugging, picturing good stuff for you. You know, there's multiple things that you need to do in combination to put yourself in, in, in a harmonious way, i.e. homeostasis to make these things go away. Um, there are studies you can go to YouTube. Uh, there was a study done at the university of Madrid, uh, quite a few years ago now where they took cancer cells from mice and they injected healthy cells connected to these cancer cells with cannabis compounds with THC specifically. And, uh, uh, the way that cancer works is it's an inflammatory disease, right? So that basically it's a cell. We don't get it from the outside, like a pollen or the bacteria. It, it starts as a cell in our body that becomes inflamed and morphs and, you know, becomes uh, irritated, essentially. And basically, that cell, like a, this zombie cell, you know, tries to reach out and grab the cell next to it and inflame and make that one essentially a new version of itself. So it's basically cancer knows two things. It either eats or it dies. That's it. So as it's trying to inflame this other cell, um, when cannabinoids are introduced, cannabinoids are essentially one of their base properties is that they are highly anti-inflammatory. So when you have this anti-inflammatory compound that's been introduced through the CV receptor, it uh, transfers those anti-inflammatory properties to the cell, uh, which is side note, why cannabis stays in our system for so long when these other, uh, compounds like, you know, opioids and cocaine and all these other, your body tries to get it out right away. It'll hold on to cannabis for three or four weeks Mm. if there's an excess so that it'll, it can implant them into the cells of your body. So when the set, when the cancer tries to grab this cell, this healthy cell that has these anti-inflammatory properties, it can't, it keeps trying to grab it. Again, there's a YouTube video that actually shows this going on. Uh, once the cancer can't 
infect the cell or, you know, disrupt the cell next to it, it turns in on itself and starts eating itself from the inside out. And it literally commits suicide uh, by eating itself alive. It, this is called apoptosis. So cannabis has been shown in multiple, uh, and I have, again, personal experience with this. I, there's a lady named Donna Esposito, which was the reason I started carrying cannabis oil at my dispensary, stage four metastatic melanoma. She had uh, weeks to live. She had already been cleared for a hospice bed. She had already been approved. They were waiting for the bed to clear. They had already done her living memorial at her church. This is all documented, by the way. There's an article written about her. She has it. It was a um, her case was monitored by the Mayo Clinic as she was taking oil, this cannabis oil. She refused to do it. She did one or two immunotherapy sessions and she couldn't take it. Little tiny school teacher in her late 60s at the time from Massachusetts. She's in her 70s now, by the way, cancer-free for the last two years. And she it, she will tell you, not me, that she uses cannabis oil once a day. Uh, she was taking it every four hours at that time. And her tumors were shrinking. And she's like, Jim, this is going to be huge. And I, I give her a hug every time. And I'm like, Donna, I promise you it's not going to be huge because people can't both they can't wrap their minds around it and she's like my doctor you know and within a few months the doctor was over it and on to the other cases and they kind of got buried she has a giant book of the entire you know of all of her cancer of all of her uh um the monitoring set you know when they would uh uh take the uh images of the tumor of it shrinking uh so that was my first experience of a quote unquote miracle since then literally hundreds if not thousands of people you know with um severe uh situations that have been able to either give themselves a high level high quality of life or um make it go away like com completely alleviate symptoms that they're told there is no cure for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. What was her name again? Donna Esposito. So in, and, so in, so in Donna's case, uh, I'm just curious because anytime you hear a story like this, there's a, mm -hmm. you know, there's a, I guess maybe a bias in the world to think that there's been some sort of, you know, I don't know, maybe overstatement of fact, or at least um, there's a case in where people would leave some of the facts out. Right. And so in Absolutely. her case, you know, when you, when you hear that story, my first thought goes to, okay, well, she's better because uh, first and foremost, because of the, the cannabis treatment. And uh, so I'm wondering if, you know, were, was she doing this in conjunction with any other treatments as well, or is it just primarily the cannabis that, um, that she was uh, using to create this result? So, uh, to be hundred percent clear with her and, uh, and I'll get into some other, you know, general cases after this, but with Donna's specific case, um, and this is something that should be done on a case by case basis. However, yeah. Donna decided after, um, uh, you know, I think an immunotherapy round is maybe five to seven treatments, something like that. She did two and after the second one, she did no more conventional Western treatments whatsoever. She only used cannabis oil. And she literally went to her doctor and said, I could feel that that immunotherapy was not right for my body. And there's no way I can survive that. So um, if the cancer is going to kill me, I'm going head first. 
I have to do this cannabis oil because it's the, the thing that doesn't wreck my body, you know, doesn't make me feel like my body's being wrecked. So she literally used, you know, once again, she did the other, this lady was meticulous how she went through her life and her diet and all of those things. Mm -hmm. So as far as convincing, conventional Western treatments. She did nothing else as far as going through her life and her diet and exercise and the people and all that stuff that I mentioned, she did everything to the T mm -hmm. uh, um, as far as green vegetables, you know, cutting more of the um, like processed meats, you know, like pepperoni, sausage, that kind of stuff, like the things that aren't close to nature that have been. So all those as far as cutting all the processed stuff out, those types of things, um, she totally, uh, changed her life. Other than that, the only thing she used was cannabis oil every four to six hours. And, um, there is an article by United patients group, which is, a uh, uh, the place that we got a lot of our early information from They're in, they're located in California. And due to the fact that California at that time had already been 12 or 15 years in to their cannabis act, there were people that were very knowledgeable out there and the united patients group was one and still remains one to this day they do great work as far as getting information out there and if there's anyone out there uh that i can help you can incur you know you could have them contact me directly but united patients group also is a tremendous resource for uh, knowledge of this plant and a lot of it is uh they they have medical doctors on staff kind of a thing that write their articles and that, that go through those things. So that was, uh, someone that helped us with the information as far as implementing the cannabis regime. Mm -hmm. And then we just kind of tried to figure it out from there based on how she was feeling. So, uh, anyway, the back to your original question. Yeah. The only thing she used was cannabis oil. However, I have also seen positive results with people using things like chemotherapy and in conjunction with cannabis um, or immunotherapy in conjunction with cannabis or CBD. Now, there are newer types of radiation and immunotherapy where you're, you can't use cannabis uh, in at the same time. And it's recommended you stop like seven to 14 days ahead of time because of the inflam the anti-inflammatory properties of cannabis and you know these disease these uh these treatments like radiation and immunotherapy are designed to actually you know they it, it basically does damage to everything but it does more damage to the cancer than anything however when you introduce an anti-inflammatory thing like cannabis they, they kind of do a tug of war with um their with some of the newer immunotherapies and radiation. However, most of them, you still can use cannabis in conjunction. So okay. I've seen success in combination. I've seen success with just cannabis. And to be fair, I've seen people who uh, are very close to me that didn't use cannabis at all, and that they are still cancer free using, to the best of my knowledge, using Western medical, um, you know, like the radiation hair fell out, the grew back, etc. And uh, so I've seen all of the above. I guess it's it's uh, really important to to respect each individual and how they want to direct their treatment. Right. Yeah. So I mean, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, you're not a hardliner. It's like, you know, it's it's not one thing or the other. Maybe depending on the person, 
they may respond better or worse depending on what the treatment is. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it behooves whomever is treating them to understand that and to, you know, be sensitive to that fact. And, um, yeah, so, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and I'm curious about if there's any research on this, but one of the things that you mentioned earlier was the fact that your body has uh, receptors uh, for different types of uh, cannabis compounds laced throughout your body. And I think the sort of extrapolation from that was because they exist, that, that the plant would then be a good thing for you to put in your system. And I'm just wondering if there's any sort of correlation in terms of the numbers of receptors in your body to a particular compound to having a need or use for that thing. Because as we've seen, you know, with COVID, for example, you know, COVID attacks the ACE2 receptor in the upper respiratory system. So in fact, your body is, is, is taking in this virus into a receptor and actually blocking a, uh, an enzymatic reaction that, that protects you, that keeps your lungs healthy. And so, So, you know, if, if the, the presence of the receptor or the number of receptors somehow dictates the goodness or badness of a particular compound, I'm just wondering if, if you've seen anything on that. As far as the, uh, if the receptor will allow the compound in or not? Well, I think what I took from your statement was that because there are so many of these receptors that there's that you should strongly consider the fact that this is something that your body was meant to be in the presence of, or it was meant to be in the presence of your body. Absolutely. It's, it's undeniable. It's not even like the, the way that our receptors are designed or the way that they're laid out in our body, if you will, is they're very much like a, like a lock. And the way that the, endocannabinoids and uh so we have endocannabinoids and then we have the cannabinoids from the cannabis plant uh which there are over you know cbd and thc get a lot of attention but there's over a hundred different cannabinoids in the cannabis plant and many of them we don't even really know what they do however all of these cannabinoids fit into this receptor exactly like a lock in a key like they literally there's a a pattern a sacred geometry if you will nothing else goes into this receptor so nothing else can enter this receptor essentially this receptor these two receptors we have cb1 receptors which typically are more in our neurological muscles those types of things Uh, actually they're uh, neurological brain eyes that respiratory the cb2 receptors are muscles bones um digestive system Mm -hmm. Um, generally speaking, uh, so all those receptors do is look for cannabinoids and grab onto them. Um, there is some interesting, uh, really, uh, some recent information out around the coronavirus where they are saying that they found some high CBD strains in Canada that uh, have shown so in early tests to be effective at blocking the receptor. And you, you said the name of it. I don't, I, uh, don't have the name of it in front the of me. ACE2 However, receptor. Thank you. Uh, yes, they're showing that there's some high CBD strains in cannabis that, uh, some high CBD cannabis strains in Canada that, um, 
that were discovered in Canada at one of the facilities there that may have uh, um, properties that block the, uh, or partially like 80 to 85% block the receptor that the coronavirus enters through. Mm -hmm. That's interesting stuff, man. Yeah. I was curious about that. I'm also curious about the, uh, the business of marijuana or cannabis in general. I know yes. that, uh, you touched on this in your, in your opening a little bit and you spoke about how much money was invested to get started. I think there's, uh, some information or people think that if they just, you know, run out in the world and grab a license and, uh, you know, sign a lease that they're just going to get rich, you know, selling, um, you know, cannabis type uh, compounds into the world. And I'm curious if you could speak a little bit to the business of this thing and how it's structured. And then um, we'll go into a little bit more of the education piece uh, once we understand the business piece. Yeah. So there we're still uh, obviously a very nascent industry in every aspect of it, you know, whether it's on the medical application side, and there's fortunately there's more and more doctors and scientists getting involved now, um, that are there, you know, they've seen some of the things I've seen, either they've been personally affected or someone in their life has. And, you know, that's usually a lot of the reasons that lead people to the cannabis industry. And one of the coolest things about it is how passionate people are and what a super high percentage of passionate people that are involved. Like, um, you know, I often have people say, Hey man, you know, can, can you get me a job or, you know, is there, and, um, I'll often say, yeah, I could probably get you a job or I could probably introduce you to someone who has an opportunity, etc." However, if you're not like willing to go balls out on this and you're not willing, like if you don't, if you haven't had enough, of a spark to go drop that resume at a place or start contacting people on your own, I'd probably be doing you a huge disservice because there's the people are so passionate that they don't, it's not about the end of the day or work-life balance or those types of things. They're all in on this. And so that, that is a double-edged sword, of course, because you have people going all in a thousand miles an hour, starting businesses that have no idea what they're doing. They just know they love this plan and they'll figure it out later. And some of them do, but what I can say for every dollar that gets made in this industry, a million get lost. Mm. And I think that's a pretty conservative number. Um, and I can say from, you know, from my perspective, number one, if you run a flawless cannabis business, especially if it's, you know, you and I talked about this the other day, uh, that, the, the tax burden on a retail dispensary is something that most people can't even fathom. So there's multiple different taxes, but the most significant one is called the 280E tax, which is essentially left over from the war on drugs that you and I talked about. Mm -hmm. And uh, the short version of it is, is that if you're using, if you're making your income from a, something that's federally illegal and the government isn't able to stop you or they couldn't prove, you know, they couldn't take that money from you then, uh, but they can prove that your life is somehow, uh, centered around some kind of illegal drug trade, then they can tax your business, uh, for 30% 
of the gross sales. So gross. With no write-offs. Gross. No yeah. Sale, so no if you do a million dollars in this year or this month, yeah. uh, where you start at is you did $700,000 because 300,000 goes to the federal government straight away with the 280E tax. Mm. Then you do your unemployment tax. Then you do your, you know, all of the other state federal sales taxes, regular federal tax, regular business tax, et cetera. All of those things go in after that 30% gets cut away. So um, that's, and obviously there's people running businesses and making money. So people go, well, if that's true, then how are the, well, there are some brilliant uh, CPAs and tax attorneys. And a lot of the people early on, um, like they're the reason, uh, I don't know if, uh, you know, how many people, um, in your world or the fitness world will know Steve D'Angelo, but Steve D'Angelo is a huge name in the cannabis industry. He's considered one of the legends here. And it's because of a place that he ran and still runs to this day in San Francisco called Harborside. Uh, which was one of the very first dispensaries in the world. And it was probably the first dispensary to do, you know, over a million dollars a month. And, you know, now they're, they're, I'm sure north of 10 million a month sort of a thing. Uh, however, Mr. D'Angelo fought two IRS lawsuits where they tried to shut him down. And he set precedent for a lot of him and his, uh, CPA, um, set precedents in those court cases that help, you know, even while you still have to pay this 280E tax law, there are ways to navigate around it that are now defendable, um, that will, you know, keep you out of jail and keep you, uh, keep your court time. But then once again, if they call you in and question you on this 280 thing, you got to pay your CPA and your tax attorney to go fight the case. And then, you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially that you got to pay to fight this case. And then they go, Oh yeah, you know what? You're right. You're right. Sorry. Our bad. You're right. We'll go away. And you're like, uh, and you know, there it is that you, that money's out in a If it's a lawsuit between me and you, whoever wins typically has to pay the other person's attorney's fees. Right. Uh, the IRS and the government don't pay your attorney's fees if they're wrong. So, right. um, it's just essentially another tax, if you end up getting audited or have to go, they're going to go harder on you than they do to other people. So uh, these are all things, if it sounds like I'm speaking from experience, I am, you know, I've had uh, not the IRS thing, but I mean, we had to pay our taxes when I owned my dispensary, et cetera. However, uh, there were also, um, you know, when you, when you start getting these, uh, everyone involved that puts their money in and you see all everybody out there, uh, that looks like they're making all this money and there's this vibe of, Oh, we're just going to start printing money. And that can be devastating to a business partnership when it doesn't happen, you know, then, uh, so those, it's, there's a lot more that you have to be typically prepared for. It's a lot of the head. It's all of the headaches that come with a typical entrepreneurial endeavor. And then, uh, each state is like its own country when it comes to cannabis laws, because the way that Arizona does it is not the way that California does it. The way that California does it, it's not the way that Nevada does it, Oklahoma, you know, Michigan, et cetera. So mm -hmm. every, uh, there are some things that maybe they borrow from, or, you know, they'll copy and paste laws from one state or another. But, uh, essentially when you leave one state, 
as a cannabis professional and go to another, you have to re relearn the entire system, how they do everything, because there's very little uh, that transfers from state to state right. as far as that goes. So, so, you, um, so you had your uh, dispenser here in AZ and you yes. mentioned uh, at the top of the show, you were talking about, uh, I think you said it was around $200,000 to get off the ground. Um, or at least that's how much you had invested. Is that pretty yeah. typical? That was uh, to put the application in. I was just to put uh, the application in. Yeah, uh, that was uh, a that was basically not so. With the application, they required you to have business plans, security plans, financial plans, a plan for how you're going to operate in the community, mm-hmm. um, and all of those things would require an expert to write. You also had to have an actual piece of property secured. Either you need to own it or you needed to have a uh, letter of intent from the landlord saying, yes, I do intend to lease this property to this person or this group if they win the license. And so at that time, landlords were charging $10,000, 10 to $25,000 for one of those letters. Yes. And as you and I know, an LOI isn't worth is literally not worth the piece of paper it's written on. So, um, so you had to go out and get all of those things. So by the time we had all the money in on the application, we were uh, somewhere between 150 and 200 grand. Uh, the dispensary itself, um, by the time we got the, in Arizona, you get a completely vertically integrated license. So they were, they're still very valuable, meaning like, 50 to a hundred million dollars when I say very valuable, uh, for, if you wanted to buy one of those licenses now, that's about what you'd need. Um, in order to start it, I borrow, I, I took a hard money loan from some Canadian, <laughs> from some Canadian cats, um, for a million dollars. And it still wasn't enough to get us complete. Like it still, it didn't get us, it didn't get anything other than uh, our dispensary open, the, the retail location. We, that uh, didn't get our cultivation open. I didn't even begin a, I did end up with a cultivation that I ended up getting open um, right before I ended up walking away. However, it was also littered in lawsuits. People were suing each other, trying to take the license from each other and a bunch of stuff like that. So all of the money that ended up getting spent on, uh, in particular lawyers and lawsuits, uh, that was the, that was the majority of the money. Gotcha. So, so um, when, so depending when, on the state, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, so when you're talking a uh, vertically integrated license, that means that you can basically grow, produce, sell package from top to bottom. Yeah. So the, uh, in, in a cannabis space, a completely vertically integrated license would look like, uh, a grow or a cultivation, an extraction facility, the ability to produce edibles, and then a retail store to sell that stuff through. Mm-hmm. Um, so most states sell those things, um, or you apply for them individually. So you would have only a retail license in Colorado or California right. in, uh, or only a cultivation, et cetera. So yeah, Arizona was unique in that they, they allowed, or that the licenses 
allowed for complete vertical integration, which is part of what makes them so valuable. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, that would be tremendous if you had one license where you could operate all of those different uh, portions of the business under. I mean, that's just insane. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's insane. And it's also incredibly overwhelming because, you know, they're, as you heard, I'm considered to be pretty knowledgeable, if not somewhat of an expert on cannabis in the endocannabinoid system. However, when you start talking about extraction, when you start talking about cultivation or making edibles or, or you know, any kind of consumable, uh, you know, product, those are each things that people spend an entire lifetime on mm-hmm. to become, you know, proficient at. So, uh, it, in order to vertically integrate, you, you have to be able to at least interview someone and know if they're full of shit or not, or know, right. if, you know, if they, if they really can do this and in a world, especially back then when I had my license, you know, five years ago, five plus years ago, um, there was no like, Hey, I went, you know, I worked for this place for you know, these, everybody was doing extractions in their garage and stuff. And they were growing, you know, in garages or storage spaces or warehouses, you know, underground. So the it, determining if someone, which is far different now, now that we've got an established industry, that is one of the things, at least someone tells you, I have experience here. You can call that business owner now and verify you know, did this person work here back then it was somebody coming from the black market. So one, you have no idea what kind of work ethic, et cetera, they have, and you have no idea if they actually even know what they're talking about. So, um, still developing in those areas, but it's much better now that, you know, there's an experienced labor pool specifically, and, um, that uh, people can actually put a resume together that shows past employment, et cetera. Yeah. So when you first get your doors open, man, if, I mean, obviously, you know, you talk about uh, cultivation, growing, what have you. I mean, that's a tremendous expense. I mean, you're talking about, you know, um, you know, cultivating uh, plants, land, um, you know, um, buildings, lighting. I mean, you, there's just a shit yeah. ton of stuff that's going to go into that. There's going to be a tremendous amount of expense, you know. So at the end of the day, I can't imagine that unless you're just, you know, rolling in it, that you're going to be open your doors and then go vertical straight from the get go. So if that's not your plan or if that's not something you're capable of doing, where are you getting product? How are you sourcing it? You know, how are you gauging the, the quality or the consistency of the product that you're pulling into your store? That's a great question, man. And uh, so back in the day, like when I opened my dispensary, fortunately, uh, Arizona had a really good um sort of alliance they put together a um, a dispensary owners association and so uh this was the state or private it was private just the individuals we as individuals put together our own association and there was some really uh strong leadership man i have to say early on and uh so we were there were some people that owned warehouses out in Yuma or in, you know, Flagstaff or whatever, or were construction guys and engineers that were putting their own cultivations together. And then, you know, I knew our biggest battle was going to be the retail location and establishing it. And I also knew that we had, and I also was very naive to the fact that I uh, probably should have gone after the cultivation first, but limited resources, et cetera. We decided to, open our retail facility 
and then network really hard with the uh, people who had cultivations. Mm -hmm. And um, the reason why that's such a great question, it triggered so much stuff for me because then like with my dispensary being at Metro center, uh, which is off of I 17 at Dunlap over there, you know, so we would uh, and without me having a cultivation uh, and with so few cultivations going, I had to know who was producing the, and this is where being a cannabis user from the time I was 12 years old to now really helped me a lot to determine, you know, cause there were some people that had most of the people that owned dispensaries had no idea what a good pound of cannabis looked like. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely one of my saving graces is that I knew what a good pound of cannabis looked like. And I, uh, attached myself to the people that were growing it and, became friends with many of them. And I wouldn't wait for them to stop by my place and say, Hey man, here's some, I would call them and go, what do you, you know, what's coming up next week or what do you have right now? And my guy in Flagstaff would say, I got four pounds of this. And like, as he's saying, I got, I'm literally grabbing my car keys and walking, like walking out to my car to drive to Flagstaff at that, which was three in the afternoon or nine in the morning or whatever. I'm like, okay, I'll see you in a couple hours. And I would, I wouldn't wait for him to deliver. I would go get it and, you know, bring it back to my place and, um, in order to have it there. Also early on, um, there were a lot of people, a lot of dispensary owners were bringing illegal cannabis from California because the stuff in our one, we didn't have a supply that could meet the demand of the patients through our storefront through registered pounds. Uh, so they found ways to sneak them in back there. It's, uh, much more difficult, if not impossible these days to do with the, uh, the dispensary program in Arizona is, is very tight. Mm-hmm. So very tightly monitored by AZDHS. However, at that time there were lots of holes. And so uh, I was one of the few dispensaries that I'd never, I never brought a single pound from out of state. I, every single pound I bought was licensed and it cost me dearly because they were buying, you know, my competitors were buying pounds out of state at 1800, a legal pound in Arizona was costing me 5,000, wow. Wow. 4,000 to 5,500. So, wow. um, and you know, that's how I got it was I paid those people for it. Um, so it, um, one of the lessons I've learned is that, uh, definitely you want to start with the, with your cultivation extraction. Um, those are for the reasons you just said, like, how do you know? Because even, even back then when I was getting good product from people, uh, they weren't giving me their best product. They were putting that on their shelves, you know, and it's still that way now, or they're, you know, selling it to their, their, really good their wife's you know their brother-in-law or what if something like that that owns his you know they're going to give it's rare you're going to get super priority on that type of stuff so really um a cultivation is very key and knowing what to do with the specific genetics you know the the individual seeds are like human children you know you can tell they're from the same family but one may have uh, very different characteristics than the other one. And so knowing what to do with those individual genetics 
is also a key to having a successful cannabis business, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the math on that, I mean, if you're spending five grand to pick up a legal pound, you know, how much of that five grand do you actually get to put in your pocket at the end of the day after you've paid all these taxes and people and lawyers and accountants and all the rest of it? Oh, it was pretty much nothing. I'll tell you back then, brother, I was living, I was living in a two bedroom, uh, fourplex and everybody thought I was a baller. Like, and I'm not, cause I was saying it just cause that, you know, they're like, Oh, that's the owner of the dispensary. <laughs> Whoa. You know, and there would be this, and I was like, Nope, I was driving my shitty, uh, you know, 1990 something or you know f-150 and uh until the motor blew on it and then my camry <laughs> after that and uh yeah and i was living in this little tiny bedroom apart you know and there were times when i would have to go to my landlord and go um hey can i had to pay the attorney and i would lay out all the lawsuits and every you know like here's what's going on and uh and thank god for some understanding people in my life but yeah it was a uh um, there was basically nothing at the end of the month with it once we paid, especially early on like that, cause you have investors to pay back too. That's right. That's right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We're definitely so, going to expect uh, that return. It's a, it's a long, definitely a long, like any other business, um, for someone getting involved, uh, you know, were there people who got in and made quick hits? Absolutely. There was a couple, I saw a couple people that put some money in. They ran it for two or three years. They were able to keep the fighting down or to, or gone or, you know, non-existent. And they were able to sell their license. Um, but like I said, for every dollar made a million get lost. I really, I believe that's a pretty conservative figure. Um, and if you're able to start make, if you're one of the people that's able to start making those dollars and figure out the system, obviously, um, establishing yourself early on before, uh, there's interstate commerce, uh, right. That's another one of the challenges with cannabis is that you can only deal with people in your own state. Mm -hmm. It can't be transported over state lines legally. So, um, a dispensary here in Denver wouldn't be able to buy from someone in Phoenix kind of a thing, you know? So, um, that also makes things like expanding your business, uh, difficult because, uh, if there's different licensing requirements in one state than in another, and you can't form a corporation, you know, a federal corporation or a, a you know, corporation that would do business, um, interstate doesn't exist. So right. you can only form corporations that do business within that state. Right. Right. Yeah. And that... linking them together under one brand is a definite challenge. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, based on what you're saying, I mean, it, it would be just, I mean, even if they were linked together in some way, shape and form in terms of branding, I mean, all of the things that are happening behind the scenes with the legalities and dealing with all of that stuff is going to be a s completely separate team, you know, to handle what's mm -hmm. happening in say Colorado, for example, versus Arizona in your case. Exactly. And, uh, um, yeah, those are all on top of the taxes and everything. They, You'd never get the economy of scale in that situation. Right. Your dollar doesn't get to buy a portion of another service in that scenario. So the economy of scale doesn't exist. Therefore, your mm -hmm. profit margin is going to be stagnant unless and until that can happen. Right. Exactly. That, um, that's very accurate. Um, there's also things like, um, like Oklahoma, for instance, will only allow an outside investor to put 
20% of the money into an endeavor mm. and can only be 20% owner. So uh, actually you can put all the money in, but you can only be 20% owner. Right. So you have to have an established residency of two years in Oklahoma in order to own a license there. The crazy thing, the licenses there are $2,000. So the difference is, you know, I mentioned all, everything that went into my Arizona license. Mm -hmm. If you went to Oklahoma and established residency there in two years, you could buy all four licenses for $2,000 a piece and vertically integrate your own. I mean, obviously that's only the licenses. You still have all the infrastructure you got to put in place, Sure, but very different, uh, regulatory system and investment and infrastructure than you have in other states. Yeah. And you said the Arizona license was what, 10 grand or something like that. Yeah. To put in was 10 grand to and put, now they don't. Yeah. Just to, to get in the lottery was 10 grand. Was 10 grand. Okay. Um, they issued 28 more licenses after, uh, like a couple years after that. Mm -hmm. So now actually they've, uh, 29 licenses. So there's 128 licenses in Arizona now, but they're all um, occupied and operating as far as I know. And uh, the only way to get one is to buy it from the existing group of people that own it. Gotcha. So they are sellable. Once you attain them, you can sell yes. them. Gotcha. So where do you arguably. see, where do you see, yeah, arguably, <laughs> where do you see opportunity uh, springing up in the business of uh, marijuana or, or do you see opportunity um, at present with given the current climate? Well, um, I see tons of opportunities. Number one, um, I really see a huge opportunity in the supplement end of things. So there's really very few people that understand that we can use cannabis as a, as a supplement, like pre-workout, post-workout, um, during the day in micro doses. I'm not talking about getting high during the day. I'm talking about, you know, like you would drink a cup of coffee to sort of boost your euphoria or to boost your energy. Some people use coffee for that. Um, in a similar way, you would use micro doses of cannabis to enhance your daily life and to enhance your physical and mental routine sort of a thing. Um, I think that's a huge opportunity. There's not almost no one is talking about that aspect of it. Um, because when your body is in homeostasis and you keep it there, um, you know, as we know, good, things happen. You can get things done. You can keep your focus. Your body doesn't allow diseases to, to be there. So that's one huge opportunity. And then I also, um, as far as, uh, supporting industries go, I think there's big opportunities there. So all of course, picks and shovels, uh, technology based things. Um, uh, I see a lot of opportunities for people who, really understand how to do staffing, like high level staffing. I'm talking about like CEOs and CFOs and, you know, the uh, directors and uh, maybe to general manager type of stuff, like staffing companies that, that specialize in bringing in those types of people. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I also think that the CBD and hemp world, while it's a little bit overrun and there's a lot of people doing it right now, um, there are also opportunities, um, that 
are completely different because hemp is now federally legal and CBD being derived. If this, if CBD has been derived from legal hemp, it is considered to be federally legal as well. Gotcha. Um, so there that you can, um, you have to be very careful and there has to be proper documentation, et cetera, but you can transport, uh, giant quantities of hemp over state lines. So there is uh, interstate commerce possible and available in the hemp industry. And you can grow giant fields of that. The licenses are slightly easier to obtain. So uh, maybe you could speak to that just a little bit. So as a, you know, as an outsider looking into the world of marijuana, like there's so many different terms and terminologies and, you know, sort of different classifications and categories, at least on the surface. You know, what makes hemp special? You know, how does that relate to the overall plant of marijuana itself? You know, give me a little bit of education around those terms and what they mean and what they represent. Yeah, I'd love to. So hemp is basically just a legal designation. Um, There are uh, so there there are for for our discussion here, there are three basic um, types of cannabis. There is cannabis sativa, which is essentially from the more temperate and uh, from the more uh, like ocean type climates, seashores, the equator type areas, tropical type Um, stuff. Exactly. So it's more of a, and that the typically the effects from that are more euphoric, uplifting, physical energy, et cetera. Um, That's cannabis sativa. There's another one called cannabis indica, which originated in um, the mountains of China, Afghanistan, over in the Himalaya area, you know, uh, over there, Pakistan, etc. Um, and that grows shorter, squatter to the ground. That has typically more pain relief, sedative effects, um, and is used for that sort of a thing. Then hemp is from a genus called cannabis ruderalis which basically would be like, uh, you know, if you're comparing it to humans would be like Cro-Magnon or something, essentially the version of human, you know, it's a, like a definitely related, but a, a different fork on the tree slightly, um, tends to be a little bit more hardy, grows a lot taller, more, uh, um, and they're, they're starting to, to breed across all these lines because you can interbreed these plants. So the traits from the mountaintop plants can be bred into the plants from the Caribbean, etc. And hemp also. So um, hemp itself is basically a designation from the federal government. And what that means is any cannabis plant that tests under 0.3% THC. So if it has less than 0.3% THC, it's considered hemp. Um, that, and that, that's really just an arbitrary number that the federal government picked at one point. Um, and it's been used to this day. There's no real, um, there's no real reason or logic and no one can really, uh, pinpoint how it got set up that way. But the, the way that it is, is if it has less than 0.3% THC, then it's considered hemp. Anything over that would be considered cannabis. Mm. And how do they gauge that? Like, how do you measure, 
you know, 0.3% THC? Is that of overall volume of plant or how does that work? Yeah, it's based off the overall volume of the plant and they use a, uh, most typically they use, uh, the laboratories use a liquid chromatography procedure, which basically breaks, uh, you know, um, pulverizes the entire plant and then, um, spits back out the analysis of what a hundred percent of it entailed. And obviously a large percentage of that would be plant matter, plant fiber, waxes, lipids. Um, and then you have uh, flavonoids, terpenes, terpenoids, and cannabinoids. Gotcha. So in this particular definition, then any of these different, um, is it genus or species would be, could be considered hemp if they're 0.3 or less THC, no matter where the plant came from, tropical, mountaintop, whatever. Yes. hundred percent. Got it. Got yeah. it. That's a, yeah, that's a, <laughs> That definitely adds to the confusion. Uh, at least it, it added to mine and understanding yeah. exactly how this, uh, you know, how this this all came down. So when you're growing here in the states, you're growing. If you're growing in Arizona, for example, what are you growing? Are you growing a combination? Are you are you growing your own strains? Are you growing? Um, you know, did did you get a strain from somewhere else and then bring it here? How does that work? Um, yeah. So essentially, early in the program, we asked. You know, with a there was a group of us dispensary owners that went to AZDHS and we're like, well, if it was a felony before this law and we have it now, how'd we get it? And there was this long, uncomfortable silence. And then like sort of looking around the room and there was like really not to, and they're like, mm. and we're like, mm. and they're like, mm. and we're like, okay. And then, uh, it was really one of those moments where like, are they tricking us? Like, are they going to come raid yeah. us? And then we're going to have to fight this lawsuit after this kind of a thing, you know? Right, right. Um, and fortunately that wasn't the case, mm -hmm. but so to answer your question, there are some famous strains and there are some strains that have, you know, an undeniable smell and an undeniable, um, effect, etc. And they're highly sought after. So, uh, you try to get the, the, um, cuts so you can take a, just like you can from a tree or, a you know, an, uh, another, uh, like a tomato plant, you can take a cutting and it'll form roots if you treat it right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, cannabis is the same. You can take cuttings and you can get cuts from other people. Um, it also has a male and female in those in the species. So the male produces pollen and the female receives the pollen in its flowers. Um, so typically, and then the, the female produces the seeds in the flower, which are the buds. Um, if it's touched with pollen, if there's no pollen, then the flower forms and that's the sellable, you know, buds that you get at the dispensaries mm -hmm. are the ones that haven't been touched with pollen. So, um, it's a little bit more of a process to hunt through seeds because you typically got to plant, you know, 10 to a hundred seeds. And then you hunt through those seeds to find, you know, you grow them out. When I say you hunt through them, what you do is you grow them out, you harvest them, you observe them, and then you ingest them to see what the different effects are that it's really time consuming. So in order to really figure out what kind of strain you have can take a year to 18 months, if you're mm -hmm. doing it from seeds, Whereas buying a cut from somebody who's already produced, you know, proven it can get you to market faster, but everyone else is going to likely have 
that cut or something similar. So that's the conundrum there is you try to get to market with the popular strains, with the things that everyone likes, and you try to hold a percentage of your facility to hunt through some uh, unique genetics so that you can have your own varieties that no one else has. Right, right. Um, yeah. So in the in the growing of the plant, are you primarily seeking to hold the female plants? Yeah, most people are. Uh, unless they're trying to create their own genetics, then some people will. And there also are, you know, sometimes people will. They, it's funny because they actually call the male cannabis plant a bull or a rooster or a stud. <laughs> and so there are certain ones, like certain people have a cannabis plant that's that's a male that produces pollen that it's offspring they're like anything that this pollen touches becomes a winner mm -hmm. you know and so those guys are sitting on these male studs like a, just like a you know a racehorse or something like right. somebody would after a racehorse has won a bunch of stuff and they'll either sell the pollen or they'll they'll take usually what they do is they take that male and hit all the popular strains with it and then say, oh, I have this popular strain, a bunch of seeds of this, but I hit it with my, you know, my bad boy rooster that's going to yeah, produce all these other things. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there's a whole other world that in breeding and a whole other level of confusion, rabbit hole, which I'm currently going down now because I'm, you know, in the next five years, I'll have another place here in, in Colorado that'll, that'll be able to have some of these strains and stuff in it. So the genetic part of it and keeping track of all that stuff is, is a entire universe unto itself. Yeah. The guys that grow, I mean, in, in pretty much any sort of, I guess, horticulture environment, no matter what, it, what, no matter what the end product is, whether it's, you know, grapes for wine, or in this case, you know, marijuana plants, like these guys are geniuses, man. They're like little, you know, little mad scientists in there doing their thing, coming up with a great uh, product at the end of the day. And you've got to admire that on some level, whether you appreciate the product or not. Yeah, absolutely. One of, one of the craziest things is uh, how um, stupidity got, and I get like when someone's high and they're completely high and you're like, they're not there on, you know, in the room with you, I, like there's that part of stupid that goes away, but how, like how the, uh, the perpetual stupidity like or chronic stupidity comes from the plant, how that got leveled to it or, you know, how that got um, attached to it. I have no idea because if you sit down with one of these cultivators and understand what they have to deal with, number one, each different cultivar likes a different nutrient regimen. It likes different types of things. So you have to know the actual personnel, just like a horse or, you know, like we were talking about, like you kind of, you got to kind of know what certain plants like and what they don't like and what their parents were in order to be able to take care of them. Um, and you also, aside from that, you're doing this like, um, it, for instance, the indoor growers, they have to, they're not, um, really growing they're controlling an entire environment they're controlling the humidity that's in there they're controlling the co2 that's in there what time those plants get fed what time the lights go out what time they come on how clean it is they have to battle you know if you see like little microscopic mites and predators that burrow into these plants and you got to find the first sign of them in order to beat it or your whole facility will go down and to produce a cannabis crop 
from a clone is going to take you about three months to get the flower on a shelf, three to four months. So you figure it's going to take you essentially more than a quarter in business to get a pound to the shelf. And that's if everything goes right. Good stuff, guys. So we're going to pause here in the conversation and we're going to pick up the second half on the next release next week. So stay tuned for that. We'll have part two out and we're going to finish this conversation. Super important conversation. This particular topic is basically taking North America by storm at the moment. So we want to make sure that we do it justice and honor it by having a complete and total conversation around it. In the meantime, if you want to reach out to Jim, Remember, his contact information will be in the show notes. And until then, guys, we'll see you next week. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.